I want to start by showing you a video, uh, and uh, before we show you the video, I do want to tell you just a couple of things. This is a video from a church in Canton, Ohio. Uh, from 2013, and they put on an Easter pageant uh, that year. And uh, as, as you'll see in the video, uh, they are, are building up to this moment where Jesus uh, comes out of the tomb, uh, where Jesus is resurrected and where uh, we can, with confidence, say that Jesus is alive. And as they do that, uh, uh, you'll see what happens. But I do want to warn you, the video quality at the beginning of this is not great, uh, so there's not much to look at for about the first 30 seconds, but things will liven up, I guarantee it. So let's take a look and watch this video together. God had not forsaken his own son, the hour of vindication dawned, the breath of life blew through his grave. He rose up from his bed and left his shroud untouched by the wind, then he walked right toward the door to stake his place. A peal of thunder rent the skies, lightning forked its jagged edge, right through the clouds to where the soldiers So one of my favorite parts of this particular story, of this video, uh, is as I was watching this, I scrolled down, and it's often dangerous on YouTube to look at the comments section, uh, but the comments were so good. The very first one on this video says, so this is what it meant when John the Baptist said Jesus would baptize with fire. So we are talking about the Holy Spirit today, and uh, of course, uh, you know, the production that uh, this church in Canton, Ohio, they didn't expect to set their set on fire. Uh, but when the Holy Spirit descends, uh, fire is one of the constant images that we see, and we'll see that again today in the story of Acts chapter 2. Uh, so again, just I want to say welcome to you. I'm glad that you're here, and uh, let's dive in. Let's begin to think about uh, what the Holy Spirit is doing here among us as we worship today, and uh, especially as we read this uh, particular section of Scripture in Acts chapter 2, what the Holy Spirit is doing there. So as we get started, I want to give you a little bit of background information uh, about what's going on then as well as what's going on for us now as we read this story. Uh, in the world that Jesus lived in, in the world that Jesus was resurrected into, that we just witnessed, uh, the world was, was a very different world than ours is today. Uh, and I don't think that's too bold of a claim to say. The world, uh, way things that operated uh, very differently. And, and we just understand today things uh, in a much uh, broader sense, perhaps, and in other ways in a much narrower sense than they did. But one of the things that's particularly important as we read this passage in Acts chapter 2, is to remember that as Jesus is living, as the disciples are continuing on with this ministry of Jesus, they have been without, uh, without an identity as a people for about 600 years. Uh, and that, that, that year range might, might be a little bit different, but as we think about the people of Israel, uh, what they understood themselves to be as God's chosen nation, as God's chosen people, they had been without that identity for about 600 years. What had happened was in the year 587, uh, the, the kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah, was finally taken off into exile. God had uh, originally come to this group of people through Abraham and told them, you're going to be my people. 
you're going to be the people of, of the covenant of the promise. And as long as you keep my laws, as long as you follow my instructions, what we will have is this relationship that the world will begin to see who God is as a result of who you are. But the people, they, they kind of ignored God for much of their history, and they, they went away from God. They didn't follow his instructions. And so finally, the, the kingdom of Israel first, and then finally the, the southern kingdom of Judah are taken into exile. And for 600 years, they have been a people in exile. They have been a people under occupation. They have been a people without this key component of understanding who they are. See, they thought that they were supposed to be God's people, God's nation. That, that they were the ones who, who would be in charge and that they would be the ones who are showing the world who God is. And yet they've been taken from their home. They've been carried away into a foreign land. Some of them have been allowed to return, but they are scattered throughout the ancient world, living in foreign places amongst foreign people, even foreign people living in their world, in Jerusalem, in Judea. And so for 600 years, they've been asking the question, well, who are we? We thought we were supposed to be God's people, but we haven't been a people for 600 years. And they're wondering, if we are God's people, then who are we now? Who are we? Because we're not God's people anymore. We're, we're a people in occupation. We're a people in exile. We're a people scattered. We have no home. And so for 600 years, they've asked the question, what is God doing? What is God doing with us? What is God doing in our world? But as I said, today we live in a much different time, a much different place. Most of us haven't been carried away from our homes. We haven't been without an identity for 600 years. We haven't been without an identity for 400 or even 200 years. We uh, ourselves have been a part of a nation that is uh, about 240, 250 years old, uh, and, and we live in a very different world. And yet one of the interesting things about our world is that we're asking a very similar question. What is God doing? What is God up to in this world? And so we see as we read this story of people, uh, this Jewish people who have not been a nation for so long, wondering, what is God doing? And then now today in our world, we are a people. We have an identity. We, we know who we are. And we're wondering, where is God? What is God doing? And so with that question in the background, with, with that similarity between us and the world that we're about to read and enter into in the pages of Scripture, I want us to turn over to Acts chapter 2 and read together about what God is doing then, and it might shed some light on what we can understand God to be doing now. So this is in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When Pentecost day arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound from heaven like the howling of a fierce wind filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. They were pious Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and when they heard this sound, a crowd gathered. They were mystified because everyone heard them speaking in their native languages. They were surprised and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all the people who are speaking Galileans, every one of them? How then can each of us hear them speaking in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, as well as residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Ferga, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the regions of Libya bordering Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the mighty works of God in our own languages. They were all surprised and bewildered, and some asked each other, what does this mean? Others jeered at them, saying, they're full of new wine. In other words, they're drunk. 
Peter stood with the other 11 apostles and he raised his voice and he declared, Judeans and everyone living in Jerusalem know this. Listen carefully to my words. These people aren't drunk, as you suspect. After all, it's only nine in the morning, perhaps later. Rather, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young will see visions. Your elders will dream dreams. Even upon my servants, men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will cause wonders to occur in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be changed into darkness and the moon will be changed into blood before the great and spectacular day of the Lord comes. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter begins this sermon. And, and as we hear the words of Peter, as he declares these words read from the, the prophet Joel, and as we hear the story of Israel, the story of this Jewish people. One of the first things that we encounter is the Holy Spirit descending upon them, alighting upon them as individual tongues of fire. Uh, Each and every one of them, there's a visible sign that God is working, that God is doing something. And yet, even with this sign, even with this visible thing that they can see, the people gather together and they're wondering, what is happening? People from all over the world, people from uh, different regions, from different cities who speak different languages, they come together and they begin to see what God is doing. And yet they still have questions. Well, what does this mean? What, what can we understand from this? Because what we're seeing and what we're hearing, it, it's amazing. But what does it mean? What are we supposed to understand about God because of this? And of course, as we read this story, for those who have perhaps been uh, reading Scripture for, for much of their lives, or even if you're brand new to reading Scripture, one of the things that you might recognize is that this is a story that has a reference back to a previous story. So we ask the question, what is God doing in the world? We wonder, what is God up to? And in Acts chapter 2, we see that what God is doing is that God is taking a story that had happened earlier in Scripture, and that God is restoring this creation. The story, of course, that I'm referencing comes from very early in the Bible, from Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. And if you think about that story, if you remember that story, you'll remember that the people come together and they decide in this moment we are going to build a tower to reach the heavens. And they do this not because they think that they are so wonderful or mighty, but because they think that if they can do that, if they can simply reach into the heavens by building this tower that will reach up into the sky, that then they will know God. They will meet God and they will understand who God is. And the story in Genesis 11 reads that of course God has to come down to this tower. That God comes down to see it, that what they have built, what they have worked so hard to achieve, to to reach into the heavens, that God must descend just to reach it. But God does descend, and when he sees what they're doing, and particularly when he sees why they are doing it, God confuses their languages. He mixes them up, and all of a sudden the people are scattered. They can no longer work together. They can no longer finish this project. But here in Acts chapter 2, people from all different parts of the world are coming together in one place and hearing what God has done and what God is doing as if in their own native languages. God is restoring the world. God is bringing it back to the way that it ought to be. And of course, as we think about what is God doing, what is God doing in Genesis 11, what is God doing in Acts chapter 2, we would be remiss if we didn't mention that what God is doing is showing us the story of the gospel. 
that as much as we might think, even with good intentions, that we can reach into the heavens to meet God, to see who God is, God reminds us it's only when he comes down to us that we're able to meet this God, that our languages are no longer confused, but only when God comes and descends upon us through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, do we meet and understand who God is. And so the book of Acts begins to answer our question, well, what is God doing in the world? It begins to answer that question by saying that God is here among us, descending, coming down to live with us. Of course, this is the story of Jesus and the incarnation, and it's the story of the Holy Spirit as well, that God reaches down to be with us, to spend time with us, to redeem us. So one of the things that we might say that we learn about God, and particularly the Holy Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit is here with us, actively teaching us and showing us who God is, helping us to understand what God is doing in the world, even when we have questions, even when we don't understand what it is that God is doing. Think about the story, the people who are hearing these words in their own languages. They still have questions. They're still wondering, what is God doing? They've just seen this miraculous thing that all of a sudden they're hearing their own language spoken from these people who are just Galileans. They, they don't know my language. They're not from where I'm from. And they still wonder, what is God doing? Even when we don't understand, even when we're not able to see clearly what God is doing, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the story of Jesus, the story of the gospel. So the Holy Spirit is here, active among us. But, of course, the story doesn't end there. Peter's sermon continues on, and he begins to share with them this uh, prophecy from Joel. And he goes on after that to speak of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And as he nears the end of his sermon in Acts chapter 2, he picks up and he says these words in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you may both see and hear. For David, King David, did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. As Luke writes these words in the book of Acts, as Luke pins the words of Peter's sermon, he's helping us to remember who this Jesus is. Who is it that we have gathered here together today because of? It's Jesus. Because we are witnesses to the resurrection, witnesses to that scene that we saw and, and kind of laughed at a little bit, but, but Jesus has emerged from the tomb. A miracle of miracles. But not simply that he has power over death, but that this Jesus wants to return you and restore you to God. That it is in Jesus that God reaches down among us and returns us to the goodness of creation. 
that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are able to see and hear about this Jesus. This Jesus who is both Lord and Messiah. Lord and Messiah, a bold claim, an important claim that we hear from Peter, Lord and Messiah. Words perhaps that are a little bit too churchy, so I thought I'd give you some other words. Lord and Messiah, perhaps King, Caesar, President, Boss, Teacher, Parent, Guide, Guru, Director. Almost any word you can think of for someone who leads another, that's who Jesus is. He is Lord and Messiah. And yet Jesus isn't Lord and Messiah the way that others are. Jesus isn't the tyrant. He's not the king who thinks that he is the know-all, end-all, be-all. Jesus is not like the leaders of our world. Jesus is the true leader, the true king, the true Caesar, the true Lord who shows us and teaches us what it means to be good. He is the one who died on our behalf. He is the one who most fully shows us who God is and what God is doing in the world. And so we ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit? What is the work of the Holy Spirit? Are we even sure that the Holy Spirit is active in our world among us today? Well, I think Acts clues us in. Yes, the Holy Spirit is active today. And how we know is that we are witnesses and that we can say together that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. That through Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are being brought back to God through the restoration of all things. It's interesting that fire is one of the images that's constantly used uh, for the Holy Spirit. We saw it last week at the story of Jesus' baptism. We've seen it again this week. John Mark and I were joking earlier this week uh, that uh, the the graphic for this series, uh, if you're not aware of what we're talking about, it might be uh, a little bit uncomfortable for you. Uh, It includes fire, and typically we associate fire uh, with with damnation, with hell. And yet, the Holy Spirit descends with fire, tongues of fire upon these people. You think back in the story of Scripture as to what purpose fire and even light bring to God's people. And you remember that this is the God who has created this world that is good. And the image of fire is not one of hell, but one of refinement, of resurrection, of restoration, of bringing what has been destroyed, what has been uh, tainted back to God's goodness. I thought, too, of a story that I was reminded of uh, from my time as an intern at an organization called Dry Bones Denver. Our teens, in fact, just spent a a week over the summer uh, there uh, working with homeless young adults uh, and getting to experience their world and see their world, to witness what it looks like. And one of the things that they experienced is what we called a turf tour. And it's not the type of tour that you take of a city when you go as a tourist. Instead, it's the tour that you take when you want to see the broken places, the places where life is difficult. And so we led these groups that would come, like our teens just went over the summer. We would lead these groups through tunnels, through stairwells, places where people are sleeping under bridges, places where people are taking and using drugs. People don't often visit these places. And yet, part of what our God does is to shine light on what's broken, 
on what's hurting. So we would take people to these places, not to show them this way of life, but to show them that God wants to restore and redeem these places, and particularly the people who spend time in them. And one of the last places that we would go to is what we call the darkness tunnel. It's a storm drain, and we would go into the storm drain, and we would walk about 100 yards, the length of a football field, through this storm drain. And all along us as we're walking are these graffiti symbols, signs of life that people have been here, people are using this space. And finally, as we get further and further, it begins to thin out. People haven't gone quite as far back. All of a sudden, it's more sporadic, only here and there. And finally, we get to a place where the graffiti is almost non-existent, and we turn off the flashlights that we've been walking through this storm drain with, and it's dark. In fact, it's so dark that you can't see your hand directly in front of your face. And we ask them to simply gather along the sides of this storm drain and sit in silence for a few moments. And the silence, it's crushing. It's deafening. It's uncomfortable. And we sit there for what seems like forever, but is in reality just about a minute or two. And finally, someone turns a flashlight back on. And as that light is restored to that dark area, people's eyes are drawn to it. People come back to that place. And the fears that they might have been experiencing, the doubts that might have been surfacing, maybe even the lie that they were alone in that place, it's quelled. It goes away. Because you're reminded through the light that God is present, that others are there with you. And so when we think about this theme of light, of fire, of refinement, of restoration in Scripture, this fire of the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples in Acts chapter 2, perhaps even upon us, to shed light on what's broken in the world around us and to work to bring it back to God's goodness. That when you enter into those dark tunnels, those places where it seems like you're alone, there's nothing good there. That all of a sudden you're reminded that we join together with our brothers and sisters in faith to shed light, God's light, into the darkness of the world. So what is the work of the Holy Spirit? What is it that we are left as believers, as followers of Jesus? What are we to do with this knowledge? Well, perhaps we can simply recognize that we are able to join with God, to help bring light into the darkness, to help others see clearly who Jesus is, that he is Lord and Messiah. So this morning, we're going to continue worshiping here in just a moment, and we're going to take communion together as well. And when we do, I hope that you will take the time to look to the person sitting to your right and left and to see them to see them as one who the Holy Spirit has descended upon, one who is testifying with you this morning that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, one who shows us most clearly what God is doing in the world around us. Here in just a moment as we stand and sing, our elders are going to gather around the room, and if you'd like to come and spend some time with them in prayer, uh, maybe there's something dark going on in your world right now. Maybe there's something that you desperately need prayers for. We encourage you and invite you to come and spend some time with them in prayer. If today you would like to put on Christ in baptism, if you'd like to receive the Holy Spirit 
I invite you to come and have a conversation with me, share with me your hopes and your desire. Would you please come while we stand and worship together?